Hey there, history fans! And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering the rather famous Madame Tussaud. And her waxworks. Yes. Well, we're majorly covering the person herself. I think most people know the waxworks, but today is all about who started the museums that we know as Madame Tussaud's Waxwork Museums. If you like today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you go on to your favorite podcasting platforms, leave us a rate and review. It helps people find us. Yes. You can also contact us through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can also go to our Facebook and Instagram pages, which is History Explains All underscore podcast, where we also occasionally have polls, which you just had one. Yes, we recently had one and y'all voted for the 27 Club Curse. So that'll be an episode upcoming very soon. And you can also visit our Instagram page for our Today in History segment. It's another thing that was actually just posted (laughs) literally like five seconds ago. (laughs) So. Come join us. But to get into today's episode on Madame Tussaud, let's just go into a little bit of her background and origins real quick. Woohoo! So Madame Tussaud's actual name or the name she was given upon birth was Marie Grossholtz. And she was born in Strasbourg, France, France, on December 1st, 1761. Not long after she was born, her father was actually killed and this was during the Seven Years' War. After her father's death, she moved to Bern, Switzerland, which is where she would grow up. She also learned wax modeling from Philip Curtius, who had two wax museums, and she became his prized pupil, really. That's just, that's really what she was. Became extremely famous. Let's, let's just admit that. She's really good. And before the start of the French Revolution, yes, Marie Tussaud lived through the French Revolution. Really hard to do. But um, before the French Revolution actually took hold of France, she was an art tutor in Versailles. She was actually specifically the tutor of Madame Elizabeth. Do you know who that is, Melissa? French royalty? Yeah. She was, Madame Elizabeth is King Louis XVI's daughter. I mean, daughter, sister. (laughs) Yes, wrong. I said the wrong word. But she's King Louis XVI's sister. Wow. She was teaching, Marie Grossholtz, aka Madame Tussaud, was teaching the king's sister. How to do art. Pretty, pretty snazzy there. Yeah. When the French Revolution began in 1789, she actually was imprisoned along with Curtius, and they were imprisoned for being royalists, aka in support of royal. And she was actually prepared for the guillotine. Yeah, she was supposed to meet the guillotine and have her head cut off. Oh, yeah, we forgot to do a little uh, disclaimer. This might get a little gross. We are talking about the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror in this. Heads up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the one making puns today. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was unintentional. I know, you were laughing at it. (laughs) Heads off, I guess. (laughs) No, no, they went up. (laughs) Off and They rolled is what they did. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh lord okay so they were prepared for the guillotine and actually a supporter of her teacher courteous was actually the one to save them from death and she was released from prison but it came at a price after her release she and philip courteous they had the gruesome job of making what are known as death masks of those who had been beheaded it is rumored that she actually created the death mask of Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette. Can you imagine that? The people that you lived in their house, which was really their palace of Versailles, you taught the sister and sister-in-law art, and now you have to make their death masks. Well, gruesome, yeah. I mean, I'll be going into it in a bit in my segment, but I just can't, uh, I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do to get, get your head cut off, I guess. I guess. Yeah, well, not called I mean, yeah. the reign of terror for any simple reasons. I'll get into more about the reign of terror in just a bit here. In 1795, she married a man named Francois Toussaint, hence her name changed to Marie Toussaint. And uh, they had three children together. One was a daughter who died not long after her birth and two sons who ended up living. And her marriage to Francois actually fell apart. It didn't last. And in 1802, she moved to England with her two sons. And she ended up spending the rest of her life in Britain. Not long before her marriage, I forgot to mention this, Philip Curtius died in 1794 and she inherited the museums that he had already had, which were one or two, two wax museums. That's it. Once she moved to Britain, she decided to do a British Isles tour of all the wax work she had brought with her. And this tour was so successful that it launched her career. In 1835, she opened Madame Tussauds and became, and became a permanent fixture in London. That's where the original Madame Tussauds is. And the Madame Tussauds in London actually still has some of the waxworks that Marie Tussaud created herself. Over 200-year-old waxworks, and they're still standing. That was a little bit on Marie. However, let's talk a little bit about the French Revolution. Always Just a fun topic. What? <laughs> I said always a fun topic. More like gruesome. This is where it's going to get possibly really gross people. So, okay, it's going to get really gross. Just if you don't like to hear about beheadings and the use of the guillotine and all that stuff, you should probably exit this episode now. Or at least skip forward at least maybe five minutes. Five, ten, something like that. Okay. <laughs> So the French Revolution began in 1789, and it lasted almost a full decade. It only ended upon the ascension of Napoleon Bonaparte into power. Yes, the man we know as Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and his rise to power is what ended the war. But what did start the French Revolution in the first place? Do you know, Melissa? Robespierre? Robespierre is definitely part of it, but... (laughs) What started it? So, uh, so was, are you ready? Are you ready? The American Revolution. We, we kickstarted another revolution. <laughs> we kickstarted a whole bunch. True. But this one really kickstarted the French one because uh, during the time of the American Revolution, France supported America against the British. War be expensive though. So war was extremely expensive and it actually really put a dent in the French coffers. And not only that, 
Louis the Sixteenth, the King, and his wife Marie Antoinette were not well known for not spending money. They spent it lavishly, like too much lavishly. And well, by the time that the revolution really began, France was on the verge of bankruptcy. 1780s, France on the verge of bankruptcy, a king and queen that continues, continue to spend money because they don't know how not to, you're going to really piss people off. Not only that, France was in the midst of a shortage. And by that, I mean a food shortage. There had been 20 years of really bad harvesting seasons and a lot of disease that hit their meat sources. So like cattle and pork and all that other kind of stuff. So you're having your, well, they're also your dairy sources because cattle give you the milk. Your meat source is low and so is your wheat, which is your main source of food. That's your main grain, wheat. And therefore the cost of food continued to increase, which meant people can't afford it and therefore we're starving. So you're lacking wheat to make bread. You're lacking dairy from cows because cows keep dying. And you're lacking meat from cows because cows keep dying. Not only that, the starch that was used was used in styling these extravagant and tall hair pieces that the nobility used. You had to make them stiff to keep them in place. They were, what did you say, two, three feet tall, something? Oh, sometimes up to four feet tall. Oh my gosh, it's insane. I love looking at the pictures of these hairstyles. Hair extensions. You've got whole sceneries built into these hairs. Women... That sometimes the hairstyles were so tall that the women had to sit on the floor of the carriages because their hair would so be in the carriages. Yeah. In rooms, they had to make sure they weren't away from fire. I mean, it was insane. And then not only that, uh, I mean, this doesn't have to go with the starch, but also a very, very popular fashion for high nobility at the time. Incredibly, very long, very wide, long dresses to where you got like two chairs on either side of you long so you've got we'll put a, oh yeah we'll have pictures but you've got we'll, we'll put a picture up on yeah. on like instagram and our facebook page yeah french women the, uh the french female nobility style was incredibly wide dresses and incredibly tall hairstyles yes so extravagant and lavish like we were saying and when you're using up the starch for your hair there isn't any for food. Yeah, I believe so, uh, it was two pounds of starch for powdering, for stiffenings for some of these hairstyles. It was up to two pounds per wig. Yeah, ridiculous yeah. amounts of starch and therefore a lack of food. Let's also make the other, let's also make the peasants who rely on the bread even more angry. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Well, you're taxing them too much already as it is. Now you're taking away their food source. And so the day that is considered as the beginning of the French Revolution is the day that the people charged the Bastille, which occurred on July 14th, 1789. From there, everything went into its own downward spiral, riots, looting, burning of houses and the nobility, so on and so forth. And in 1793, it came to the king was sent to the guillotine. He was beheaded. And that is the marker of the start of the reign of terror. Literally was a reign of terror. It was horrible. And the reign of terror lasted for 10 months 
approximately 17,000 people that we know of, that we know of died during this reign of terror. 17,000 people, 10 months. It's a lot of people to be taking their heads off. The, the guillotine was used daily. And a lot of these beheadings were orders that were given by, you said his name earlier, Melissa, do it again. Robespierre. Yes, that person. <laughs> we don't like him. And what's interesting to me enough is that uh, he actually ended up meeting the same fate. <laughs> yeah. He ended up in the guillotine himself and his head was rolling on the floor. And upon his death, I like how deaths are the turning point here. On his death, another, the French Revolution took this other turn, which basically was that people thought that the actions that were taken during the reign of terror were over the top, which they were. I mean, 17,000 people were beheaded. And the end of the revolution really came with the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte. So on August 22nd, 1975, a new constitution was enacted, which gave executive power to a directory. And this directory consisted of five members that were to be selected by parliament. Many people, they didn't like this. They didn't like this idea at all. However, the army, which at the time was led by General Napoleon Bonaparte, very young at the time, swiftly made them be quiet. <laughs> they were very quiet after he entered the picture. So this directory is in charge. However, they fail miserably. And they actually became known for political corruption. Are you surprised, Melissa? I'm not. Never. But in order to maintain their power in the government, they actually relied on the military and they actually ended up ceding their power to the generals of the French army. On November 7th, 1799, Napoleon led a coup d'etat and the coup was successful and the directory was abolished, was gotten rid of, goodbye, five directory members. Napoleon then became the lead power and the end of the French Revolution is here. Before I get into... Um... Uh, Marie Toussaint and her artistic qualities of being a wax sculptress. You were talking about all the guillotine stuff, and it made me think of that one Black Adder episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, call it Pimple and, <laughs> and then, and then yes, yeah, when they're, they're, they're in Paris and it's Black Adder and Baldrick they're talking to, they were like, oh, I want you to talk. To the French ambassador, and then you've got the revolution. It's like, I am an evil revolutionary, and I have murdered the French ambassador and have turned him into Pate. Pate. <laughs> My favorite, favorite Blackadder episode, hands down. <laughs> it's your favorite Blackadder. It's not my favorite Blackadder episode. We'll mention that later, I think. But uh, it's definitely in the t- top five for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think season three is Pate. Season, season three is just probably the best season of Blackadder. Oh, but I love I love the Scarlet Pimpernel episode. We're saved! You yay! Oh, you killed him! Oh, <laughs> back to Tucson. So as we mentioned, she began her tutelage and wax sculptures by uh, Philippe Curtius, who was actually a doctor, and in his spare time made wax models and became so well known for it. It became his new profession, and he opened up a couple galleries. And eventually, she would become so well known as a wax sculpturist that there people had said, 
we can't tell the difference between her work or Curtius's work. They're both almost equal. They're, they're so well done and so lifelike. We can't really tell the difference. And so she essentially became his protege. They worked, they co-owned the museums together. And upon Curtius's death, she actually became sole owner of the two galleries. And in addition to that, they also were at the court of Louis XVI at the time of his arrest and imprisonment. And as we said, the two of them were prepped for the execution block at actually Marie was literally being prepped for her guillotine execution. She even had her head shaved in preparation for it about the time of her reprieve and in order to win their freedom from the guillotine, her and Curtius were required to make death masks that could be shown uh, essentially head on pikes without having the head on pikes, but shown to the people and like, you know, we do not want the aristocracy. Here's a, here's the aristocracy. Here's the king who ruined us and all that kind of stuff. And they were on scene at these executions, making wax models of the heads of the people who had just had them cut off, which is, as we said, very gruesome. And in fact, Marie actually wrote an ex, a, a memoir. And on, in that memoir, she writes, on the steps of the exhibition with the bloody heads on her knees, taking impressions of their features. So she's literally a freshly severed head right in front of her and she's creating wax models of it. It's just, I can't even fathom what that would have been like. Interesting side note. At this time, wax sculpting, sculpting for women was actually seen as an acceptable hobby. It was appropriate for women to do this. Usually more artistic hobbies, painting maybe, but sculptures and clay and things where women would get dirty and get their hands dirty and were not seen as appropriate. So needlework would pretty much be your mainstay, which I enjoy doing. I'm looking under my desk. There's five different cross-stitching kits right now. <laughs> and I'm about to order another one because I'm just, anyway. You don't need more. I don't need more hobbies. I've got like six of them and not including the podcast. <laughs> anyway, wax sculpting was seen as quote unquote lesser or requiring less talent to do. So it was appropriate for women to have because women were not seen as having artistic or creative talent. but it's actually quite the opposite. It requires not only a lot of patience in order to make sure your wax works are done properly, are done realistically, are done anatomically. In this case, uh, Marie and Philippe uh, had to do them in very uncomfortable situations, not just at the executions on the execution block but you also were doing this at the jails. You were getting people's death masks and other crime scenes. I'll get to that in a second. It also requires a ton of artistic skill, you know, you know coloring and then materials. You have to make sure the shape is right and everything. It, it really is an art form. And one instance of her having to be on scene of, the, of a crime, there was the death of Jean-Paul Marat. And he, he was... He was a journalist at the time who was very sort of revolutionary in his ideas, but he, if I, I think he had scrofula, if I remember correctly, I don't cough them in, but he had a, some sort of skin issue and tended to keep himself in his bathtub 
uh, with various treatments and would write his pamphlets and things from his bathtub and then have them distributed. And a opposing person from an opposing part or a person from the opposing party, Charlotte Corday, is actually arrested for stabbing Marat to death. And Marie Toussaint was actually on scene taking a wax sculpture, making a death mask of Marat at the same time that the police were still interrogating Charlotte Corday at the scene of the murder. Mm -hmm. No, thank Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I'm an archeologist, so I don't mind dealing with the dead, but I like it after there's no like body fluid. (laughs) Like they've been dead thousands of years and the flesh is gone, all that. I like the bones, not the fresh stuff, ew. See, like living bodies, operations, gross me out immensely immensely uh ew i don't mind blood i just don't like seeing the work the the insides of a human being while they're still alive but an autopsy does not bother me in the least but then i've never been to one in person but i've always wanted to i'm also weird and wanted to be a forensic archaeologist so there's both wanted to be archaeologists i wanted to be the archaeologist that went and found the bones and did all the religious based stuff and you wanted to be the forensic archaeologist. I want to do forensic archaeologist. I wanted to do, uh, I've got my certification as a crime scene investigator. I wanted to do crime scene photography. I wanted to be a coroner or a medical examiner. I hadn't really much looked into being a mortician, but that would still be kind of cool. But, you know, I just like dead bodies and the states of death. I'm weird. I like religious death ritual burials in before the birth of Christ era. So... <laughs> Still dealing with the dead, but I prefer their bones. Love the, the, you like the, the bones. you like the very long dead. Yes, I like just the bones. <laughs> I don't want anything else. Just, just bones. We're good. I'll take the skeleton and run. I'm good. Nothing more. Thank you. You can have all the rest. <laughs> I pass it to be back to you. <laughs> well, speaking of dead. So Curtius, unfortunately, died in 1796, around the time of the end of the Reign of Terror. But being co-owner of and his protege, Marie was now in charge of Curtius's business. And again, the two galleries that he had owned. And as we mentioned, she married Francois Toussaint, and they had three kids, two of which survived. And 1802, though, a German illusionist, Paul Philidor, actually suggested to rejoin him and the London-based art show and bring her waxwork. And her husband was not very good and not very good with money. And so needing to provide for her children because her husband isn't doing a very good job of it, she said, okay. But she only took one of her sons with her. She took Joseph with her, Francois I think would stay with his dad. No, no, she stayed with his uh, his grandmother. But anyway, she took her youngest son and they traveled around England, Ireland, and Scotland for the next 33 years, touring all of her waxworks throughout the British Isles. It's a long, long time. Now, keep in mind, she barely spoke any English when she came over. And at the same time that she came over, Napoleon was beginning, the Reign of Terror was ending, things were certain to not look good on either side. And even though she had thought about going back to France, it's not that she didn't want to, because she kind of did, but she just wasn't able to. It just being a French woman in England at the time of obviously England and France always fighting with each other. 
and not speaking a whole lot of English and being a single mother, it was very hard for her to be there, but she certainly made it work. She hustled her butt and her heads. And she wrote in her memoirs, there are two things everyone loves to see or have in, in terms of what they like to, to, to watch. Royal fever and horror shows, which, yeah. And when it comes to especially art, you give the people what they want. And then she gave them what they want. She had wax modeled heads of decapitated royalty. So you get two for one right there. So author Pamela Pilbeam uh, in one of her books about Marie actually wrote the snobbish glamour of royalty as well as the thrill of being au fait with the latest gruesome murder or assassination, which is how Marie would sell her her wax works uh, or sell her exhibit exhibits as she went along and toured. And Marie even claimed that although people can make wax art and wax heads, my cast come directly from the source because she was on scene at these executions. And while she was in Britain, it wasn't just the French royalty or Marat or other French, well-known French executions. She was also doing uh, English royalty. She was doing other English famous court cases and executions at the same time as well. And she was be really beginning to make a name for herself and beginning to make a lot of money. But her reputation increased dramatically because at one point while she was out touring, she got a royal commission from Princess Frederica Charlotte of Prussia, who at the time was Duchess of York. Pretty, pretty good. So in 1822, her son Francois joined her and her youngest son in London. And in 1835, at the age of 74, wow, she finally settled in London, created a permanent exhibition on Baker Street. And I don't think it's 221B. Oh, I, know you're, I, I know you made that joke earlier. <laughs> come on, 221B Baker Street. Although, <laughs> come on, it probably didn't really exist back then. Right, right. I don't think it did. And she, oh my gosh, this, the, the, once she opened the exhibit, it was a massive hit. Because now people could come to her instead of her going to them, which was always a good thing as well. And she, even at the age of 74, even still creating all these wax exhibits, even still running her own business, she personally greeted guests. She would stand at the front entrance and greet people as they would come in. This gallery that she opened was 5,000 square feet, which is pretty big. And it had a grand salon, which was covered in very lush and ornate draperies. And there was very lush and ornate seating arrangements in the gallery, surrounded by large mirrors in various places on the wall so that her figures could get, quote unquote, the best angles. Fancy, fancy. No, what's super fancy is the next bit. I was floored at these two next bullet points that I have. Oh my gosh. You know that you've really, really made it and that you've really, really made a lot of money when you're able to do this. She was so famous and so rich by the late 1830s and early, early 1840s that she was able to purchase King George IV's coronation robes and a a carriage owned by Napoleon to use as part of the displays in her exhibit. Ooh, that's money. Oh no. The next one I think tops both of those. Are you ready for this one? Cause I know you'll really like this one. I'm not ready then. <laughs> Tell me anyway. So in the 1840s, 
Not long after the marriage of Victoria and Albert, Marie created a royal display portraying Albert putting the wedding ring on Victoria's finger. And she was even able to receive a royal permission from Victoria herself to make a precise copy of her wedding gown for the display, which cost a thousand pounds to make at that time. A thousand pounds. I did not do the conversion. I apologize. That's some long silence right there. There's a little bit of shock on your face. I'm speechless. I mean, geez Louise. She got royal permission and she was able to purchase the gown to make a precise copy. Like, I mean, getting permission from Victoria made- was probably incredibly difficult to begin with. But to get an actual permission from her to make a copy of her own wedding gown, just wow. Now that's the royal part. Remember, we always said, we, we, she, she, Marie had said, royalty cells and horror show cells. So she always had a section that was referred to typically as the chamber of horrors, or if you're in quote unquote polite society, it was known as the adjoining or the other room which featured the gruesome and infamous displays of beheadings and executions and various criminals of the time. And there's even sculptures of Marie like sitting at a desk making a sculpture. So a sculpture making a sculpture. There is one sculpture, I believe it is at the London Museum, that is a young version of Marie with her hair coiffed up and everything holding up a wax head. So it's a wax head holding up another sculpture. But it was a lot of Marie about in all these. And she even had created full body displays of Burke and Hare after their arrest, I think prior to the execution. And one of her, I forgot to mention this, one of her, the very first wax head model that she was able to use was Voltaire himself. And I am a fan of Voltaire, so I'm very jealous. (laughs) Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. Aurelio Voltaire too, but also Voltaire the philosopher. And she also made, at the same time, she would, at her courteous would host dinners sometimes. And at one point when she was still learning, she went to a dinner with courteous, Voltaire, Benjamin Franklin, and I'm missing the third person. I apologize. But just imagine Voltaire and Benjamin Franklin in the same room having dinner together. And you're a 12, 13 year old girl getting to witness this. Oh my gosh. Unfortunately, the, the, the face of Voltaire that she had made is no longer around, but there are plenty more that are. Madame Toussaint lived a very full life, as you've just heard, and she actually died at the age of 89 in the year 1850. It's a really long time to be living at that time. Her death certificate simply states that she died of old age. However, one of her sons, Francis, actually wrote a letter to his father in 1848. And there was a reread of the, that letter recently. Uh, and by recently, I mean, in the past decade, uh, an article came out talking about this. And it is now believed that something else took her life. The letter basically states that she was weak, she had asthma, and, and she was in a lot of pain. So. According to the archivist at Madame Tussauds at the time that this came out, Louis, Louise Baker, um, Roberta Balestraria, who is from the University of the Arts in London, and Frank Ruliv, who is from the Institute of Evolutionary Medicine at the University of Zurich, all of them believed that the symptoms that she had 
point to a cardiorespiratory syndrome, which could have been something similar to like pneumonia that could have killed her. So they don't think it was just old age anymore. Pneumonia is not fun <laughs> at all. You would know. I would know. I know Ooh. you would know. I would also know because I saw you. <laughs> you drove me to the hospital. I did. Yep. That was that was not fun. That was a terrible Christmas. <laughs> let's uh, let's never repeat that. I have no intention on it. Okay, good because I'm not driving up there to drive you. <laughs> I will take the bus instead of the ambulance. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, Lord above. Madame Tussaud lived a very full life and uh, became very famous, and her legacy lives on to this day. Very much so. And far beyond even just the museums themselves, which I'll get right on into. So, as we said, the first museum opened up in London in around 1835, and it's still ongoing to this day. And it became so popular that, obviously, ever since then, in the last 186 years since the first museum opened, there have now been 21 Madame Tussauds throughout the world, including Amsterdam, Berlin, San Francisco, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Beijing. And there's six of them in the US, including LA, San Francisco, New York, and DC. And I actually found an article that, although I couldn't find any information on how Marie herself made the wax figures, I was able to find out how the museum in London currently makes their wax figures. So I'm going to go into that just for a minute, just to give you an idea of how time consuming this really can be. So there's a Washington Post article, and I'm just going to read directly from it. So it says the process of creating a wax figure has hardly changed since Marie Tussaud began making them more than 200 years ago. It takes about 350 hours of work. All of Madame Tussauds figures are made at the company's London studios. One sculptures look at the paintings, photographs, and videos. And if they can meet the person, meet the person in person, they will take measurements. There's one sculpture creates a life-size clay model. A steel frame is then created and the head is removed. A plaster mold is made of the clay face and head. This mold is then removed from the clay sculpture and then pieced together. Hot wax is poured into the hollow mold and cooled until a thick layer of wax is hardened and the plaster is removed. Hand-painted acrylic eyeballs are then inserted into the head. Ten layers of oil paint are used to create the correct skin tone features and makeup. Facial hair and head hair are dyed and styled exactly to match the person's hair. And it is added to the model one strand at a time. And then at the very end, a hard plastic cast is made of the clay body and dressed for display. The hands are also usually made of wax because it's more lifelike. And then the head is added back onto the model and the entire process is complete. Wow. I just want to I'm going to go back and correct you on a couple of things pertaining to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. There's actually seven here in the United States. There is not one in Los Angeles. It's in San Francisco in California. I thought we had a Max mm-hmm. Wax one up here. I think we used to, because I used to remember driving by one, but I don't think it's open anymore because it's not even on their website. I'm staring at it. 
Mm-hmm. They have one. They have one in Hollywood North. Oh, like I know there's LA one in the area. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's part of LA County, but it's not like downtown LA, LA in that sense. But there's one located in Hollywood. You have one in Orlando, Las Vegas, San Francisco. There's one in Nashville, actually. Well, that's not surprising. Uh, Washington, D.C. and New York. Hmm. So there are seven locations. There is one here in Southern California and one in Northern California. So we're actually the only state to have more than one. We're a big state. So that gives you an idea of what it takes to create a wax exhibit or just one single wax model. And that also doesn't go into making the clothes and the style of the fit and everything for the models themselves. But outside of the wax museums, Marie Tussaud, and the museum itself have been mentioned in a variety of different places since she opened. And in fact, there is one, to me, it's notable because I'm a giant Vincent Price fan and have been for a very long time. There is one called House of Wax, but there's different numerous versions of this, not just the Vincent Price one, but they take the general story of a wax maker working uh, their craft and their wax museum, but then going and killing people and then creating the lot, the dead person, putting them into wax and then using them as people in their exhibits. So she's, it, it's been used in horror films. Several horror films have shot scenes in the Tucson's in London. The movie Shanghai Nights, which is a very, very funny film with Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson. And there's a prominent scene that actually takes place in a recreated chamber of horrors that is a fight scene that takes place in there. It's very funny. And she's also shown up, the, the Marie herself have, has shown up in Assassin's Creed Unity. There's a skit, I want to say season three of Horrible Histories, which is a very, very hilarious skit. But then again, that show is just very, very hilarious. She even shows up and the museum itself show up in the Mazarin Zone, which is a Sherlock Holmes story. And there's even the, a book called The Death of Art by Elizabeth Bowens, which came out in 1934, I think, and which two of the main characters are at a tea room at the Madame Tussauds. And apparently they make conversation about, it would be nicer if the waitresses were made of wax. This museum would be even better. <laughs> a very unusual There's a a song by Steve Taylor called Meltdown at Madame Tussauds. Now, that isn't directly about it. it, There's more of a metaphor going on with that song. But essentially, the if you take the lyrics at face value, it is about the the wax museums melting uh, and causing disruption. So essentially, Meltdown at Madame Tussauds. And after Marie passed away in 1850, her son, her older son, Francois, took over the business as well as his son and then his grandson. However, the museums are no longer in the Tussauds family. I believe they're corporation owned now. But I do want to leave you with this one quote to close everything off. I don't know if this magazine is still around, but there was a London-based satirical magazine called Punch, which was around during the time that Marie had the museum opened. This is a perfect quote to end this all with this. 
And these days, no one can be considered properly popular unless he is admitted into the company of Madame Tussaud's celebrities in Baker Street. The only way which a powerful and lasting impression can be made on the public mind is through the medium of wax. And I'm going to say, you know you've made it, whether it's history, politics, cinema, literature, where you know you've made it big when you've done one or two of these things. You've had yourself modeled in wax at a Madame Tussauds, or you've been featured in an SNL skit. Exactly. By the way, we should go visit the one in Hollywood. It's open. I've never gone, and I certainly would love to go. Let's do it next month. Let's plan for me to come up in June. Sounds good. Well, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. We hope to see you next week as we continue to trek through history to explain, explain it, all. it all. Bye.